If you'll open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be in a familiar passage this morning, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, the very last words of Matthew's gospel. We've been in a series on the four G's. We've completed the first G. We're spending two weeks on each of them, the four G's once again, if you haven't been here. Uh, they are the uh, foundation, the pillars of our uh, church. From the beginning, the, the, the vision that this church was cast in. Uh, the first G is grace. That, that grace is our glorious foundation. And the second G is grow. That it, grow is our constant exhortation, our constant uh, reminder to ourselves and to each other is that we need to be growing. And, and we'll spend this week and next week on grow, and then we'll go to groups for a couple of weeks, and then finally we'll look at the fourth G, go, uh, for a couple of weeks after that. This is God's word in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's about a dozen different ways that we could probably look at this passage and glean things from it. But here's what I want us to look at this morning as we come to this passage. I, wanna, I want us to look at these words from Jesus in light of how they teach us about our need for growth and also how we grow. Our need for growth and also how we grow. And the first thing that I want you to notice as we come to the passage is just some of the context before Jesus' words. Uh, Jesus' words may be f familiar to many of us here. These words uh, that we call the Great Commission. They've been so important in the history of the church. But I want you to notice first these verses that I intentionally included for context. Verse 16 says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. You'll remember that Judas, the 12th disciple, there had been 12 that had followed Jesus throughout his ministry, and Judas had betrayed Jesus. So there were 11 now left. And they went up to a mountain. Now, the book of Matthew, as you read through it, you, you, you may notice if you pay careful attention that mountains are really important. Mountains are really important in the book of Matthew. They come up over and over. You probably remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. That sermon happens up on a mountain. And then in Matthew 17, in the middle of the gospel, uh, there's the transfiguration. They go up on a mountain, and Jesus is, is transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah appear, and there's this great revelation. And here, at the end of the gospel, they go up on a mountain for these final words, the Great Commission, as Jesus sends them out. So they go up on this mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They worshipped, but some doubted. Now, first of all, this, this is probably one of the most honest confessions 
in the Bible. I love the Bible for this, that, that, that over and over and over, you get this, this language that just wouldn't be included. No one would think to include if they were just trying to write a story that sounded good. No one would think to include that some of them doubted. But that's what Matthew tells us. They worshipped, but some doubted. Matthew's very honest with us. And how relatable is that? Scholars aren't really sure who Matthew's talking about exactly here, but, but based on the, the grammar of the passage and the words that, that Matthew uses, as I w- was working this week to try and understand exactly who Matthew was talking about, uh, it seems to me the best way to, to think about who those some were who doubted is that they were some of the people who are worshiping. So some scholars will say, well, probably doubt and worship don't really go together, so, so it must be another group of people there that the disciples are worshiping, but, but some others are doubting. But it's really, when you look at the, the way that Matthew says it in, in the Greek, in the passage, it, it seems pretty clear that, that it's some of the people that are worshiping there are doubting. We don't tend to think of worship and doubt going together. You know, you see right off the bat that, that, that there's both a proper response to who Jesus is, they, they, they worship, they see that he's been resurrected, they see that he's, he's died, he's been this person with authority throughout the gospel, he's calmed seas, he's healed sick, and, and now he's been raised from the dead, raised back to life. So, that, so they're right in their worship, they're right in seeing that they were made to worship him, that, 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 that he is God himself, they wouldn't worship anybody else, and yet, we all also know from personal experiences, that our faith in God, our trust in God, our worship of God is going to have ups and downs. We all know that there will be highs and lows in the Christian life. There are some mornings that we come and we sing, and we are very engaged and excited, and there are some mornings that we come and we sing, and we don't know if we believe the words we're singing. Sometimes our faith will be mixed with the presence of doubt. This happens in every kind of circumstance, by the way. It's not just when we're going through hard things. It does happen when we're going through hard things, but it also happens when we're going through good times. Perhaps it's more dangerous when we're going through good times, because when we're going through good times, our, our, our doubts tend to be, why do I even need God? We live in a, in a culture that, that really kind of sets aside even the idea of the existence of God. In our day-to-day life, we just don't need him. That's what we think. But in times of intense suffering, the questions become more difficult. Is God good? Does he care about me? Why did he not prevent this from happening? Doubt creeps in. In the 16th century, so about four or five hundred years ago, there was, the, of course, the famous Reformation that we've all heard of. And some famous figures like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others who were big reformers of the, of the church. And, and we, in the Protestant tradition, we follow, in many ways, their acts of reforming. And, and they're famous for this idea of faith alone, that salvation is through faith alone, that it's only faith by God's grace, that saves us. But, but 
one thing that they talk about a lot is the difficult issue of doubt. Even though they believe that we're saved by faith alone, they, they talk a lot about our doubt and the difficulty of doubt in the Christian life. For example, John Calvin uses uh, this example, this image of somebody in an old prison. So remember, he's writing in the 1500s. So, so there's somebody, imagine somebody in an old dark prison where you can't see the light. But he says, imagine that there's a small crack and light is coming in that small crack from the sun. But you can't see the source of the light. And John Calvin says this is, this is kind of what the Christian life is, is like a lot of times, that, that we feel boxed in, imprisoned by the, the darkness around us, and yet sometimes it's just a ray of light that we can see, and we can't even see the source. We can't even see where the goodness is coming from, where the beauty is coming from. Everything around us seems to block out the beauty. We just see that small ray. And he says, that's what doubt is like. But for the person with faith, that ray will still be there. Sometimes we will see the source. Sometimes we will, we will be engaged and we'll, and we'll know and we'll trust and we'll be leaning on the goodness of God. And sometimes it just feels like we're trapped. Sometimes it just feels like we can't, can't get to God. We can't comprehend what he could be doing right now in our lives. can't even get ourselves to believe those lines that we sang earlier, all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been so, so good. It doesn't always feel like that. And Calvin says that ray of light for the person with faith will always be there to remind us, even in the tiniest bit, the tiniest bit of faith. But friends, my encouragement to you this morning is that God particularly keeps that faith alive in us, not by just some personal, individual, existential experience, but God keeps that faith alive in us in particular ways, and that the primary way that he does this is through this body together. Not just this body, but every local body that meets together throughout the world. That when we sing together, something is happening more than just me looking at a screen, seeing the words that are there, and deciding whether I believe them or not. When I come to a body of believers like this, and I'm having trouble believing that all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been so, so good, when I come and I'm singing alongside, maybe even having trouble getting the words out, but singing alongside or listening alongside a body of believers, a body of people who know this to be the truth, even if we don't feel it, that that's where God's grace meets us, that that's where God comes and he strengthens us. Friends, this time together is, is the center of our growth in Christ. This is where God comes. And he says, I'm going to declare my word to you. We're going to hear from God's word. We're going to sing God's word. We're going to pray God's word. We're going to worship the true God even when we don't feel it. Doubt will be a part of the Christian life. And it's not a symptom that I've lost my faith. 
Doubt is a part of all of our lives at some level. But friends, it does point to our need to continue to grow in faith. We want to, even through the ups and downs of life, we want to continue to follow the Lord and to build our trust in him through every circumstance, the good and the bad, the suffering and the good times, the things that go well and according to plan and the things that go completely wrong. Throughout, we want to grow. The Christian life is, is, is a life of growing in dependence on God and growing in our trust that God is good in all of it, that who he is doesn't change, even as our circumstances are constantly changing. So here's where I want you to notice Jesus' response. They worship him, and some doubted. But Jesus comes, and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth, is given to me. There are two things that Jesus emphasizes here. Two things that Jesus emphasizes in his response to his people. The first is who he is in relation to us. And the second is what our mission is in response. Okay, so it's, it's our king and our mission. Who our king is, what our mission is. Okay? And when Jesus emphasizes who he is, he, he points to two different elements, two different characteristics. He says this, first of all, he has all authority, and second of all, he is present. It's authority and presence. The first thing he says is this, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Jesus has been showing this throughout the gospel of Matthew in showing that he has authority over, uh, over demons, over nature, over, he even has the power to forgive sins. And heal a paralyzed man. He's been displaying his authority, but now there's something even new and greater on display. Because he has just gone to the cross and borne the sin of his people. And yet, as he was buried, the grave couldn't hold him. And he raised to life. So there's a new authority now. That, that, that if sickness is an enemy, if, if, if physical uh, limitations are an enemy, B blindness and, and, and paralysis and other things are enemies, how much more is death an enemy? Death is the final enemy, and Jesus has now conquered that final enemy, death itself. His authority is on, in display, on, an, on display in a new way. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's not that he didn't have it before. It's that now he's come and he's accomplished it before us and we can see it right in front of us, his authority on earth. And our worship is a response to this authority. Yes, we, we tend to think like consumers in all parts of our lives because this is how Americans think. It's, it's impossible for us not to think that way. We're just, we're, we live in, in a culture that swims that way. Everything is about production and consumption. That's how our economy that works. That's how the advertisements on TV work. That's how every single part of our life orients us in that way. So it's hard to come to church and not think like a consumer. It's hard to come to church and not think, what am I going to get out of this today? Or to go away from church and say, boy, I got a lot out of that, or I didn't really get much out of that. I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily to say that, but, but what I'm saying is that that's not the primary orientation we should have when we come. 
primary orientation is that we're coming responding to the God who has all authority. That we are actually participants. We are actually coming, and by his grace, we're invited in to have a dialogue with God. As we sing, we're praying to him. We are participating together. As we fellowship together, we are participating together in worship, in response to God. That's why we read scripture so much here. It's because it's God's words to us that invite us in. That's, that's the dialogue that we're in. We hear God's word. He's revealed himself to us, and he has all authority. Friends, we're not consumers when we come to church. We are participants. We are even reproducers. In a minute, we'll look at how we're called to go out. But Jesus doesn't just say he has all authority. He's not just a mighty king. He also says that I am with you always. That's how he ends. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, here's where you have to stop and ask a question. Jesus is about to leave. Do you know that? Jesus is about to get out of there. He's about to ascend to heaven. So how on earth can he say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, when he is about to go away? How can he say that? Back up with me for just a second. To, to verse 17. It, we saw that they worshipped him and some doubted. And then in verse 18 it says, And Jesus came and said to them. Jesus came and said to them. There's a similar uh, episode that happens again on a mountain. A few chapters earlier in Matthew where, where the disciples go up on a mountain to, of transfiguration. And, and it says that they were... Uh, in awe of him, but they were also terrified. Same sort of thing, where here they're worshiping, but they doubt. In, in Matthew 17, they're in awe, but they're also terrified. They're afraid, so they hide themselves. And Jesus comes up to him, and he does this. He, it says, Jesus came to them, same wording, and touched them. Jesus came to them and touched them. You know, the value of Jesus coming and being in a body like ours speaks to the value of, of, of human touch. And, and uh, actually, in this book that we're giving to the, the elders, there's an entire chapter about the importance of human touch. Of the importance of, uh, in our sexualized culture, it's really hard to, to, to talk about that much, but as human beings, as Jesus came in a body, our bodies are important. God made us body and soul. So, so the importance of actually being with each other in physical spaces is important. And Jesus shows that when he comes and he touches them. But here it doesn't say he touched them. He came and he said to them. He spoke to them. What Jesus is showing, scholar Michael Allen says this, Jesus is showing here is that he's going to be present to them, but in a new way. That, that throughout his ministry on earth, he's been there physically with them. He's been able to touch them. He's been in relationship with them. But now he's going to be present in a new way. He's going to be present by his word and by his spirit. That he speaks to them. He sends them forth and he shows them his presence in his words. And then in Acts chapter 1, we'll see that he sends the spirit to them. So friends, this, this promise right here is just as true for you and me as it is for the disciples. When we see Jesus saying, I will be with you to the end of the age, that's a promise to us. Because the Spirit and the Word are how Jesus is present to us. He's really present. 
through his spirit and through his word. He's with you. We need his presence. We need a God who has both authority and is present with us. This is what we confess in in the, the Apostles' Creed. The very first words that we say when we say, Christian, what do you believe? It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. In that first line, two words, the Father is present with you. He's gracious to you. Almighty. He is king with all authority. He is all-powerful over every circumstance in our life, and yet he is also present. He has come to be with you. This is the God we worship. When we gather on Sundays together, we believe that this isn't just a social gathering, but this is the God that we come to respond to, come to worship. And this is where, friends, we grow. This is where we grow. We saw in the passage that was read a minute ago um, by Ivan in Acts 2 that that's how the Christian church responded from the very beginning. They came and they devoted themselves to God's word. And they broke bread together. But finally and very briefly, Jesus doesn't just show us who he is. He doesn't just point us to our king, but he also points us to our mission. And, and, and I don't have much time to, to spend on this, but I wanted to briefly touch on it here. Uh, what Jesus tells us to do is to go and make disciples. These are perhaps the most famous part of this great commission, uh, to go and make disciples. And he, the way the, the Greek grammar works, I don't like to talk about the Greek grammar much, but the, the basically what, what it is is that, that make disciples is an imperative, it's a command, and then there are three participles. Okay? The participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. So basically what, what Jesus has done here is he's given us a, 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 a command, make disciples, and then he's given us three ways that we do that. Going, baptizing, teaching. Going, baptizing, teaching. We could spend, you know, three weeks on those in and of themselves. We won't, don't worry. Not right now. Uh, but go and make disciples. This is, this is the mission of the Christian life, that we are called not just to be Jesus' disciples, not just to follow him, but to actually be reproducers, to go and to make disciples, to go out, that, that, that his mission, his authority, his presence, who he is, actually compels us to go out and make disciples. But notice how we're to make disciples. It's not through some, some magic or some crazy supernatural uh, method. We do rely on the Holy Spirit, but here are the tools he gives us. Going, baptizing teaching. Once again, it's these ordinary ways. These ordinary ways that happen in the body together on Sunday morning. There's something very ordinary and also very powerful about that. That when we come together, we are to be the disciples of Jesus Christ and we're to do this by teaching each other, by baptizing and by going. So as we go out into our lives and as we seek to reach our neighbors, we, we go, we're in relationships, we draw uh, them to see the God that we believe in, and yet we come back together. And this is where our growth, the hub of our growth, this is the foundation of our growth, this time together where we're with him in worship. It's where we go out once again. 
and, t- and Monday through Saturday are, are extremely important in the Christian life. They're in some ways just as important as, as Sunday, that, that all week we are worshiping God. And yet also there's something special about this time. There's something particular about this time that we come back and we respond to God and worship once again. And then we go out once again. And it's this cycle, week after week after week. But when we come, we're receiving his grace. When we come, we're receiving his grace. And one way that we do that is through the sacraments. We're going to turn to the Lord's Supper in response to this. The Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments that we believe in. The other is baptism, which Jesus just talked about in this passage. And these two sacraments, friends, are, are continual ways that Jesus reminds us of his grace to us and communicates his grace to us. So when we're baptized, when we're brought into the church, we are, uh, the image is that we are buried with Christ and rise again with him, and that we receive his spirit. When, when we're baptized, uh, we, we actually receive grace from Christ, and then when we take the Lord's Supper and we eat together, we actually receive the grace of Christ together. We are actually uh, uh, receiving the body and blood of Christ, not physically, but spiritually. We are giving grace through him. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, if you have your Bible, you don't have to turn there. We're familiar with the passage, but these are the words that Paul offers to tell us why we do this over and over as believers. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, this table is for those who are united to Christ by faith. It's for those who, who, who have said, I am lost in my sin, and I am in desperate need of God's grace, and have put their full trust in Jesus Christ. So as we come, I invite you, if you are united to Christ, to come. And, and, and if you don't know the Lord this morning, I invite you, uh, you can feel free to come forward, but I, but I ask you not to take of the elements, but to but to consider, to, to consider what Jesus is calling you to, because he calls all people to faith in himself. We are all called to respond. 